Let's return to Weinberg on the Law on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Attorney Scott Weinberg. I want to turn to other news today. You know, that really bugs me what happened in L.A. They've got newspaper reports all over the country, dozens arrested in violence, right, following the Lakers' championship win. you got police officers suffering broken noses, hit by bottles. But, you know, they don't cover it like they did when uh, Detroit might win the World Series or when we might win the Stanley Cup or when we might even lose something. They try to make Detroit look like we're just a bunch of barbarians running through the streets, whether we're excited or whether we're upset. But in L.A., they basically have another riot situation where 40 people here, 40 people were arrested after hundreds of rowdy fans started bonfires in the streets, hurled rocks and bottles. But you know what? They cover it a little, but they don't cover it like if it was in here in Detroit. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine if that was going on in Detroit? We'd be we'd be the the arsonists again. Arson burns down Detroit. Riots rock the city, right? But not in L.A. Boy, they control things, I think, a lot better there. They've got mob was caught on camera as a taxi attempted to leave the Staples Center. And yet, you know, it's it's very it's very uh, shoddily covered, I think, nationally, whether or not uh, that city deserves more, I guess, uh, I guess, complaints about how their their people have reacted to winning the winning the championship. I just it really bugs me when they really go against Detroit on anything that we do. Just anything that happens in the city, celebration-wise, uh, destruction-wise, they just overblow it to outlandish proportions. But here you got it because it's in Hollywood that no one really cares enough to say that it's Hollywood is burning. I wouldn't, you know what? They should have gone down and gone on top of that Hollywood sign and try to tear that down. Now that would have been <laughs> that would have been some kind of celebration. But you know, I. I don't know why people just, I, I, it's gotta be the LA persona. It's gotta be the, the Hollywood persona. You know, and maybe that's getting back to Tiger. Maybe that is what is going on. We have this sense that, that stars live above us, that they, that they live in these, in the clouds and the Hollywood persona of, um, they're above any wrongs. And then when we have one fall from grace, as it were, like Tiger. And he's accused of not despicable crimes. I mean, listen, if you're married, you know, if you're married and you commit adultery, it is bad. And you have to do it with the knowledge that the consequence is that you're probably, if you get caught, going to get divorced. You're not going to get prosecuted criminally. You might get sued for divorce. But when you are the, the, superstar of the world like Tiger Woods the most well-known face and name in the world you commit adultery one or more times you have to know that the consequence you're taking on is that you're going to want to destroy your persona and destroy your marriage and that is what was going on with him whether Kwame knew that or not no one really cared as much about Kwame but with Tiger man I tell you he he should have known. I mean, they you know Ben Ben and I were talking about it. They knew he they knew about it uh, um, that uh, 
that they had a uh, a sense that is the consequence was that it was going to uh, ruin his marriage. But you know, he claims now that he was obviously a sex addict, that he you know couldn't control himself. What do they have on South Park? They, we were talking about that. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. How you doing? You doing good? I'm doing good. But on South Park, they covered that too. I mean, we can't cover it in our national news well, but our animation can cover it. Of course. It's a parody. That's why. Just don't get caught. That was the message in South Park. Just don't get caught. You know, I wonder if that's actually teaching Tiger. I wonder when he goes to those sex addict clinic that they're saying, oh, you know what? Yes, you have disease, but your biggest problem you had, your biggest problem, Clinton, that you had, Kwame, you know what your biggest problem you had? was that you got caught. And here's the ways that next time you don't get caught. I sure I sure hope not. I hope they actually give him treatment for his uh, alleged addiction and whatnot. But listening to you uh, read that uh, L.A. Uh, riot story, I thought people in East Lansing were at first getting crazy that Izzo was staying. But, you know, because they have a tendency to get a little too excited up there. Yeah, but he made the right choice to stay. Of course he did. I mean, come on. I mean, I know that he would make more money there, but I'm telling you, he might have had a lot... A lot harder problem, a lot harder work uh, dealing with uh, Gilbert and working for him for any long period of time. And you know your your longevity as an NBA coach can't compare to your longevity as a uh, as a coach in the uh, Big Ten or any for the uh, a major college. Well, I I, w- I will leave you with this thought. Since now Izzo says he's a Michigan State Spartan for life, do you think he ever would have succeeded at the NBA level? Yes or no? I think he would have succeeded. I do. I just don't think he would have stayed. You know, they just don't stay at those at those spots. I mean, he would have gone for a short amount of time. He would have made cash at this place, at the Cavaliers. He would have made a significant amount of money, and then I think he would have left, and he would have gone back to college. Would he have gone back to state? I don't know. But they would have filled his spot, and I think he made the right choice staying. Because he's, he's proved he's a, long, he's a long-term type of coach. He doesn't want to jump and ship every time that there's some great offer when there are obviously other coaches that do. Right, and you can't blame the guy for looking, especially with his resume. But I'm personally, as a Wolverine, I'm glad he stayed. As weird as <laughs> that sounds, I'm, I might get you know criticized for it, but I'm happy he stayed. Well, I'm a conflicted uh, conflicted dad. You know, and I go blue. I went to Michigan, but my daughter's at State. So the way I get him back is I write my... Write my check to them and you're on my uh, U of M checks. To no, you, State. you just have double reason I, to hate them because you have to pay the university. <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, I have a lot more appreciation for Michigan State now that I go up there and hang out with my hang out with my daughter, and she loves the uh, the campus up there. You know, we're talking about out in L.A. We're talking about whether or not w- with Michael Jackson, whether or not that doctor should lose his license. You know, whenever you read about any famous person you think you can judge him, whether it's Tiger Woods. But when it's someone who's not famous, like a doctor who's taken care of a famous person, obviously when there's a death or some significant occurrence that happens, they come into the limelight. And here, um, clearly he was charged with, he's charged with involuntary manslaughter in, um, in Michael Jackson's death, Los Angeles, California refused money, though Monday, to ban Dr. Conrad Murray, uh, ban him from practicing medicine in the state. So it gets back to the things we talk about here on the show, too, not just about famous people, but about anybody when you're accused of a crime. You know, this doctor is not convicted of involuntary manslaughter. He's not convicted of a, of a homicide or a murder yet. He is charged with a crime. And when you are accused, of a crime, 
I mean, how many times do we have to talk about it? You are presumed innocent. Period. I know public opinion might have it where, you know, we assume that you did something wrong. Obviously, we assume this doctor gave the wrong medication or too much medication to a patient. Happens to be one of the most famous people in the world, Michael Jackson, who died. But it doesn't mean that he committed a crime just because the public thinks he did. Can you imagine that every time that we have someone accused of a crime, whether they're famous or not, that they are just guilty? You know, you go back to even this Vandersloot. I don't know if there's any defense that he has. And he's purportedly confessed, which clearly in public opinion and if it's entered into evidence in a in a trial here in America, where you have the constitutional protections, that it appears that he would be convicted. But he's not. We don't know. He's not here in America. We don't know how those statements or confessions were given. We don't know if he was even tortured to give them. We don't know enough about it to say that he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, he totally could be guilty. He could be a murdering psychopath that we should have gotten five years ago when he was accused or at least suspected in a crime. But we didn't do it then. And now when it's in a different country, we expect this country without the type of protections we wrap ourselves with here in America to protect his rights enough to show that whatever he says and whether it comes, whatever comes out, and if he's convicted, that it's a proper conviction. I don't know. We're probably never going to know if he's not tried here in an American court and we rely on, you know, Peru, relying on that court system. And turns out his lawyer already quit for whatever reason, probably getting death threats himself. But whenever we get someone accused of a crime, whether it's Vandersloot, whether it's um, this Dr. Conrad Murray on Michael Jackson's death, just because public opinion is dominant and is uh, complete that he is guilty means zero, nothing, on whether or not a jury should find him guilty. Now, the other question is, on any famous case, on any case where you have any, I guess, popularity on the case before trial, any publicity that, um, like Blago, you know, the governor, former governor in Illinois, whether or not you can ever have a unbiased jury to judge them, to weigh the evidence like they're doing right now in Chicago, I don't know if you can without a significant amount of what's called voir dire, which is basically questioning potential jurors on their bias and their ability to sit as um, reasonable, uh, people with open minds, a uh, jury of your peers that are not already prejudiced against you, especially in that Blago case, with opinions that will stop them from hearing the evidence as if it's new. You know, I don't know if Blago is the is guilty of trying to sell that Senate seat, is guilty of some type of obstruction of justice. But I do know that because the media has been so prolific in this case, including him, 
in trying to sell his case and the media trying to sell a case against him before any trial ever took place, I don't know if you can ever get someone who doesn't know about the case and therefore someone who is willing to be open-minded and be able to judge them. You can go all the way back like we talked about last week with uh, O.J. Simpson. Can Could anybody really be unbiased in either the murder case, the civil case back in the early 90s, or even in the most recent armed robbery trial, because it's one of the most famous men in the world. Can you ever have unbiased jurors to do it? And believe me, I've picked many, many juries. I've watched lawyers pick many, many juries. I've been involved in hundreds of, of criminal trials where consulting to help people pick juries. And, and never... Ever once do you ever know exactly what's going on in that juror's mind? That juror can sit there and say, oh, judge, I have no bias. I have no prejudice. I have no anti-Semitism. I have no bigotry. I'll judge that person whether he's uh, white, black, a cop, a doctor, and as if it's something that is just plain and open, and I'll have nothing bringing here other than my... my um my intent to do my job as a juror. And 100% of the time, you don't know if they're telling the truth. <laughs> just 100% of the time. So you just hope it. You hope that's the case, that they are being truthful. I mean, do you think that in Blago that they're really going to have unbiased jurors that haven't heard him talk? I mean, do you really think that? Mm. I don't know. He was good on Celebrity Apprentice, though. Well, he's great. He's a great, <laughs> he's a great showman. He yeah, he's a good politician. He is. He is a politician. What no. is a good politician? Is Someone good... who can smooth and, you know, grease the wheels, so to speak. Isn't that what they all do? Come on. That is a politician. I think a good politician, I have a different definition. This is my definition of good politician. Okay. Someone who does something they were elected to do for the good of the people. No. That's what I consider a good politician. That's an outstanding proud american politician but we have few and far between with those i have a question for you though you said you select a lot of jurors what is the most memorable excuse you've ever heard for someone to try to get out of jury duty you want the exciting excuse you want the boring one yeah, let's give both we the biggest time. excuse people use yeah the number one is i can't get off work i got it i got work I, i'm earning a living listen it's a bad economy right. i'm gonna get fired and i gotta get to work it's gonna take too much time that right. is the number one, and you know it's a practical excuse, but mm -hmm. that is the number one. The more exciting one is yeah. the ones that basically say, "Hey, you know, let's say it's a criminal sexual conduct case. I think that guy, that slime ball, he, I can't even listen to evidence on some kid being abused like that. I cannot uh, hold an open mind. Or, you know, what, judge, I just, I don't like, uh, I don't like minorities." I don't want to be able to sit and judge it because I can't be I can't be fair. And what happens is the judge rips them apart. What do you mean? Yeah. You had these prejudices. How dare you claim that these people are guilty before you even hear of it? I won't accept that. And they will grill. Most of the time, they will either grill them or they'll say, you know what? Stop talking. You are too ignorant to be on this jury. Get off. I don't want you prejudicing or uh, trying to manipulate the rest of this uh, panel. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I, I served as a juror, I think it was last summer or two summers ago now. It's a yeah. fun experience. Everyone should at least try it. Everybody. 
should try it. Nobody should get off it. And everybody who does it comes out. It might take up time, but there's, it is a story for life. It, it is, is a story you'll tell for life. It is. So everybody's lives are quite frankly very busy. Everybody's got lots going on. And for the couple of days, most of the time that it would take to do any type of either civil or criminal trial. I mean, there's longer ones clearly, but most of the time is just a couple of days. It's a pain in the butt to get in there and to go through it. But once you sit on it, you walk away with a story and a experience, at least most of the time that you will talk about for the rest of your life. And you'll probably only do it one time. I'm telling yeah. you, it's very rare to do it more than once. You can do it a couple, but one time in your life to do that is an opportunity you should never, ever pass up. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why people wouldn't at least, you know, just give it a good old college try, so to speak. Well, I mean, I mean, well, they do it because they, they try to get out because well, it's yeah. a pain in the butt. Well, because <laughs> they got more things that are going on. They want to go to, you know, the club and go play golf rather than, uh, go sit and, go sit in judgment, uh, on their peers. You know, we had this recent case here in Wayne County that was a really difficult case. This young boy, oh, it's such a shame. This uh, DeMarco Harris, he was uh, convicted, obviously, in a, uh, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, of uh, a murder. 13-year-old boy convicted of fatally shooting a Flint woman last summer, and he was sentenced his last 30 in Wayne County Judge Sheila Gibson. Really, you know, these judges really have a hard decision on these kind of cases. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you have, you can put someone so young in this state, you can't, but should you put someone so young uh, and sentence them to in prison or life uh, without parole, or should you do it as a juvenile? So DeMarco Harris was 12 years old when he was arrested for the shooting of 24-year-old Patricia Babcock during a botched robbery uh, last summer. And Harris, what, the, what basically he did was he addressed the court, apologized to it, apologized to the victim's family, and then the judge came back with her decision and uh, basically saying that uh, she was going to sentence him, and she had three options. She was going to sentence him either as a juvenile um, or uh, or as an adult. And what he did, what Gibson said, was she had three sentencing options, sentence Harris as a juvenile, which means Harris would be released at 21 years old, or sentence him an adult, which means life in prison without the possibility of parole. And her statement, basically, when he picked up that gun, that's when he became a man. He knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, said the father. So the judge really had a, a difficult, a difficult determination what to do. And, um, especially when you have any kind of murder case. Um, but in terms of what the judge, uh, uh, and everybody suggested they do is basically sentence him as a juvenile until he becomes 21 and then go forward and see whether or not there's any type of rehabilitation to determine if the defendant was going to go to uh, go to prison. If something were like that were to happen, if you, uh, let's say, like you just talked about that that does happen, say you uh, treat the uh, offender as a juvenile, and you then open it up to retrial, like say when he's nineteen, twenty, so he'd be an adult. Yeah, but it's not a retrial. Basically, well, that you can. You how is can that not a retrial though? Them. You mean on the uh, on the sentence? Yeah. Well, what you do is if Isn't someone that, is found guilty. I was going to say, doesn't that like fall into like double jeopardy or something? If they had to retry him, but they don't retry him. What they do is they sentence you either as a juvenile and they can keep you in the juvenile detention facility until a certain age. And then the judge can determine, are they going to uh, then sentence you as an adult 
and uh, resentence you or continue a sentence as an adult and continue on for life without parole, something like that, or they can release you because they originally treated you as a juvenile, but you don't go back and retry the case. The double jeopardy part yeah. is the retrial, the right. facts of the case, yeah. not the uh, continuation or the consideration for sentencing. So going like before a judge in that case would just be seen as like a greater sort of example of like a review board sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's sort of like that. It says basically, judge, you know, what decisions do you have now after having this uh, this either child or this teenager sitting in the detention facility getting rehabilitated, let's say, for six, seven years, now what do you want to do? And I think it's a way more appropriate way of doing it. I mean, it's yeah. that's what you do when you have someone 12 years old who commits such a heinous crime, you know, well, let's see what happens over the next seven years to determine what, you know, what happened to them. Why did they do it in the first place? But, you know, could they get rehabilitated because they're so young? I mean, it, when you have a family member that's killed, you don't care if it's a nine-year-old killing them like we talked about or a 59-year-old. Your loved one is dead. Exactly. The issue is how do you treat that killer? Mm-hmm. And if he's convicted, how do you treat someone who either did it because they were too young to know what they were doing or because they uh, they were actually caught up in a criminal situation, a robbery like in this case, and they commit a crime and they should be held accountable? Well, can you hold accountable a 12-year-old kid for what they do? Do you remember when you were 12? You're 60 years old right now. You tell me. Do you remember when you were 12 years old? Do you remember the feelings you had? How insecure you might have been? What was going on in your mind as a preteen? I'm not saying that you can't hold these people accountable. I'm saying that you have to have a different set of criteria, which is why our juvenile system has that, for young offenders. And should we treat them? At any time, even when they become an adult, then as an adult. So I feel that the judge, in making a proper decision, should treat all these preteens, even teens, let's say even 13, maybe even 14. Maybe when you're getting 15, 16, you're getting more to an adult stage, but definitely at 12. As juveniles, you hold them in detention if they're convicted for those many years. You try to teach them and rehabilitate them. And then you know what? You can always hold them. You can always sentence them to life without parole. But what you can't do is you can't have an opportunity to save a life. And I think that's what they basically are doing. They're saving a life or at least attempting to save a life. So, I don't know, my feeling is that our teens that are charged and convicted of those heinous crimes should be treated at least for those many years before they turn 21, differently. And then uh, there should be the choice on an individual basis whether or not they should be sentenced to uh, to prison. But, you know, everybody has a different opinion about it. If you have a different opinion, you can always call me at 1-800-7100-LAW, 1-800-7100-529, or go on our website, weinbergonthelaw.com. We've got a space there for you can blog us and give us your opinion you can answer and comment on our blogs basically everything from Kwame to everyone running for governor we've obviously talked a lot of different different issues on 
different cases, but also our legal rights around this country. Talk to me about adultery, whether or not you think that Tiger Woods should be in any way charged, even criminally. You know, I mean, they could do that. They could charge him criminally if they had the statute. I was telling, talking earlier about I was one of the only people representing someone on an adultery charge here in Michigan. And, you know, it, it, it most of the time is not charged, but sometimes is pled. And that's what we did. We pled someone to an adultery charge, but it can't be, it is most of the time, uh, charged criminally unless you have some type of proof that that adultery was committed. And then there's different rules and obligations in terms of how you're going to have to prove it. But it's not an easy crime to prove. And I'm telling you, it is very, very rare ever to get charged. So don't be looking at, don't be looking at, uh, Tiger Woods being charged with adultery anytime soon. One of the things that we talked about always at uh, michiganonlaw.com, you want to go to our previous episodes and be able to listen to what we talked about in terms of your rights and Miranda. And that where it comes in involved with when should you be quiet, when should you not talk when you're interviewed, whether listen, whether you're in the public eye like Tiger or whether you're just a private individual that, quite frankly, nobody but your family and your friends care about. You need to always know when not to give up your rights. So I want you to go on WeinbergOnTheLaw.com and you can look at all your legal rights. You can lo- listen to... uh to our show and so that at least you're informed. You know, I get it so many times. I get it so much of why are people um, talking to police? They're stopped. They're on the roadside. They're investigated in a crime. They are interviewed by official uh, from their job that are accusing them of embezzlement. Whatever the case is, they are giving up their right to exactly like we say in, in our, in our site, giving up their right to shut up. Everybody in our constitution, they should write it just like that, has the right to shut up. You give up every right you have when you talk. So the first thing you do when you are interviewed, whether it's, you know, because of a, a, a civil situation, or whether it's because of a situation where you are accused criminally, you don't know what's going on. You're not a lawyer. So always turn to WeinbergOnTheLaw.com.